Well, hello everybody there out there in extra crispy land. It's been a while. It's been a while. Hope you've still been listening to some good podcasts, even though I haven't turned out any episodes in a while. I've been catching a lot of great podcasts lately. Uh, but I've taken a break from podcasting a bit for the last few weeks, not because I don't want to do podcasting, but honestly, I've just had a lot on my plate in the area of audio recording lately. I've been uh, working on recording a new album. These are songs that I've written mainly over the last year and a half, two years, and I've been working on demos of these songs for two years, and, and now we're finally starting to put them down. And I got to tell you, I think it's turning out to be some of the best recordings I've ever done. I think lyrically, these songs are, are saying some things. Um, I think lyrically, it's some of my best work as well. So hopefully, this thing will be out in a few months. We, we've got a few more recording sessions coming up, but we're just kind of taking our time. My last album, man, we did the whole thing from start to finish in like six weeks. And... I think that album needed to come out that way. We needed something to just, I needed something to just deadline, get everything to gear. But th there's, there's an upside to that and a downside. I felt like some of the songs I wish we'd have spent more time with on the recording process because in retrospect, I, I think we could have made them better. But this, this album, we're just taking our time, getting the right sounds, the right musicians in and, um, Anyway, enough about that. You'll hear more of that as that uh, emerges and, and comes together over the next few weeks. But I wanted to check in and do a podcast. Uh, typically, I do take off the summers in podcasting. I don't do a whole lot of episodes in the summers um, because I'm, I am trying to take a break from a lot of things. But I thought I'd check in, do an episode. I may do another couple of episodes before we hit our fall season. Or this may, may be it. But we're, we're still counting this as part of season four, the, the spring season of Extra Crispy. So a few episodes back, I did an episode called The Meaning of Sight, and this is the working title of a book that I've been working on uh, since last summer. And these are just a series of meditations about how we see and how we come to experience the world, because we tend to think of seeing as just something that is a, a biological process, but it really has to do with everything we've experienced. It has to do with, you know, kind of the framework that we view throughout uh, reality through. So if you think of, of, of sight, it's not just a matter of how well your eyes function, but it's really all the things that go into how you view the world. So today I want to do an exploration of a story that comes to us from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 9. And whether you are a Christian or not, I think you can find some help in the story. Because this story speaks to some fundamental things that are still going on in the world today. It's, it's very relevant, even though it's an ancient story from 2,000 years ago. But it it really speaks to a lot of what we are seeing happen in the world today. And I think we've all experienced this on some level ourselves. So I won't read the whole story for you, but I'll just kind of summarize it and you can go read it yourself at another time if you'd like. But basically this is the story. 
Jesus and his disciples are walking along one day and they come up on this man who is a blind beggar. He's blind from his birth. And the disciples ask a question, which is a very revealing question because it reveals kind of their framework for how they view God and how they view suffering. And the question is this, was it this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? This is one of the most common ways that people, particularly religious people, deal with suffering. If you are born into a bad place in life or you're going through some difficult circumstances, it's a sin issue. Or you know, there was an old Far Side cart- cartoon that, that shows God up in heaven and he's got this smite button. <laughs> and uh, I think that's the way a lot of people tend to think of God. You know, God's this old dude with a beard up in heaven and he's got this smite button and, you know, making sure that whenever you're, you're having... Uh, a good enough go of things, you know, uh, he's, he's putting obstacles in your path or something like that. Or the other side is that we, we give credit, you know, when, when things bad happen, it's, it's the devil. And I think this kind of thought, this kind of way of thinking, we, we certainly apply it to other people, but if you ever have a, a season in your life where, you know, the, the, you get a flat tire and then you find out you bounced a check and then something goes wrong at your job. We can't help it as humans. We connect the dots and we, we start forming this picture. And a lot of people who aren't even religious begin thinking like, is God mad at me? You know, have I, have I done something to offend the divine? So this, this question reveals a very commonly held belief that Many people have at some point in their life, but it was it was very common, certainly in first century Judaism. There was actually the idea that, uh, which which you can see in this question, that you know was it this was it this man's sin that he was born blind or his parents? Uh, that means that since this guy's been blind his whole life, he would have had to sin in his mother's womb, and that was actually a commonly held belief that you could sin somehow in your mother's womb. Uh, you know, but when I look at the Ten Commandments, like, you know, stealing or coveting your neighbor's stuff or committing adultery, like, like it, it seems impossible <laughs> you could commit any of those sins in the mother's womb. But that was one of the ways of thinking. And this type of thinking is, is not something that is, is something merely in the world of Judaism or Christianity. We, we see it pop up in all kinds of religions. A few months ago, I listened to an episode of Joe Rogan from back in 2014. It was an interview with biochemist by the name of Rupert Sheldrick. And I just came across Rupert Sheldrick a few months ago, read, read his latest book, Ways to Go Beyond. I found it really a great book. And But Rupert Sheldrick, if you're unfamiliar with him, he was a biochemist and... He's got over a hundred published papers in scientific journals, and uh, I think he was a professor at Oxford for a few years. But at one point in the the conversation, uh, Joe is interviewing him, and and somehow it gets on the subject of religion. And unbeknownst to Joe, Rupert Sheldrake is not only a you know very smart biochemist, but he's also a devout Christian. 
And that seemed to shock Joe a little bit. <laughs> and Joe was like, well, tell me more. Like, how, how does somebody like you in a world that is so dominated by materialist and naturalist, how, did, how are you even a Christian? Like, how did that happen? And Sheldrake began mentioning how he, at one point after, I think after he was a professor at Oxford, he ends up in India and he is working on some agriculture initiative there. He's there for a few years. And he had found in his journey up to that point that there were a lot of questions that he was beginning to have and experiences that he was beginning to have that didn't fit within the naturalistic, materialistic framework. And he found like science just wasn't very good at answering those things. And so he began to explore religions and he ended up converting to Christianity in India. Now he's living in India at a Christian ashram. I think it was run by Christian Benedictine monks. So this is a kind of religious community that he was just staying with while he was doing his research over there. And he remarked in it that he had looked into Hinduism and other religions over there, and he found many things about Hinduism very compelling. But one idea that he just found not very helpful was this idea of karma. Now, we tend to think of karma, you know, as what goes around, comes around, you know, or, or even in the biblical sense, the, the ideas of sowing and reaping, you reap what you sow. And, and I think there is something to that. But when you see how karma is used on the ground in India, it, it, it keeps propping up this very rigid caste system. And so the way karma works is that whatever caste that you're born into, if you happen to be in the upper caste or the very lowest one, the untouchables, it is commonly assumed and believed that you are born into that caste because of good things or bad things that you have done in your previous life. And so he said the way this actually works out on the ground is that it gives people, you know, this sense of moral superiority. He said that, you know, that you, if you're walking with a couple of Hindus down the street, you come across a, a beggar who is, you know, maimed by the side of the road. Uh, oftentimes, Hindu people will just walk on right on by because basically this guy, he's here because he was a horrible person in his previous life. The other side of that is, I must have been a pretty good person because I'm walking around and I get to walk by this guy. And he found Christianity very compelling because Christianity, uh, you know, particularly the stuff we see about Jesus in the Gospels, was, was very different from that. Jesus seems to offer compassion to people, no matter whether it's a Roman centurion or a leper or a woman who's been accused of adultery and, and thrown down at his feet. There is this very compassionate side which offers mercy and grace kind of in an unconditional way. And as I was looking at this particular passage that I'm talking about today, I was kind of reminded of him because that's kind of what we see going on here. This question, is it this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to, you know, be blind from birth and then, you know, eke out an existence as a beggar on the side of the road? You know, their whole grid just sees this simply as a sin issue. And Jesus says, this isn't really about that. 
This is an opportunity for God to get glory. This is an opportunity for this man to experience blessing and healing. And so Jesus <laughs> walks up to this guy and he, he spits in the dirt, makes mud and puts it on the guy's eyes. This is a weird thing. But if you, if you study the gospel of John, there's always these kind of resonances and, and parallels with the book of Genesis. So in the Genesis account of creation, God creates heavens, the earth, animals, plants, all these different things in the, in the first five days of creation. And then on the sixth day of creation, he forms Adam out of the dirt and then breathes life into him. And the same, so in this situation, this is a, a, a parallel kind of with Genesis. Jesus is putting mud on this guy's eyes. It's, it's kind of a creative act in a sense. And he tells the guy, go to the pool of Siloam and wash off your eyes. And the guy does that. And sure enough, he can see. And if the story ended there, we would have a powerful corrective on some of our assumptions about God and suffering. But it doesn't end there. The story takes a, a ridiculous comedic, comedic kind of turn here. Because this poor guy who spent his whole life up to that point, being a beggar by the side of the road, probably not having any close friends, being estranged from community, living in abject poverty, you know, homeless... He's got his eyesight. You would think that people would be excited about this. Like, wow, we haven't ever seen this happen. This guy was blind from birth, and now he can see. But the Pharisees are upset about this because they find out that Jesus has something to do with this. And Jesus did this on the Sabbath day, the day where you're not supposed to work. So Jesus didn't follow the rules in, in healing this guy. You know, like, there's all these other days you can heal somebody. Why on the Sabbath? So they're, like, bent out of shape. They bring this guy up and interrogate him. You know, well, who did this? Some dude named Jesus. Well, where is he? I don't know. I've never seen the guy yet. And, and you know, they're just interrogating him. And, and finally, they, they think, well, surely this isn't even the guy. There's, we've never seen a guy that was blind from birth that had his eyesight restored. So they, they call the guy's parents up, they get him, his parents there and his parents are like, yeah, that's our son. Well, what do you think about that? And they're kind of like, look, he's a grown ass man. Go ask him. It's, it said that the parents were actually kind of afraid to answer many of these questions because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue, the religious community. And so they, they return to interrogating this guy and then they just keep bombarding him with questions. And he's finally like, why do you guys keep asking me so many questions about this guy? Do you want to become his disciples? That didn't go over terribly well. <laughs> and he says, look, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And then they just lied into him. They're just like, you're just a sinner. And they kick him out. So then this guy's walking down the road and he bumps into Jesus. Now, keep in mind, he still doesn't know what Jesus looks like because his eyesight did not return right when his, he encountered Jesus. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, show me the Son of Man so I can believe in him. He says, you're looking at him. He said, I believe. And he, and he worshiped Jesus. And then Jesus makes this statement with an earshot of a group of Pharisees that are nearby. He says, for judgment I have come into this world that those who are blind will be made to see. And those who see will be made blind. So one of the Pharisees who heard this chimes up. 
So are you saying we're blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have an excuse. But because you keep saying you see, your guilt remains. That right there is a mic drop moment. <laughs> and I, I think that, th- that this is where this story becomes super relevant. Now, this is a scene, you know, this, this conflict that we, we see oftentimes between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. But it really hits at the fundamental way that our attachment to our beliefs whether religious, political, scientific, you name it, the thing that, that, that we hold tightly to can so blind us. How blindly we trust in our own sight. How blindly we trust in the ways that we have learned to view the world as if the ways we view the world is actually reality itself. Now, I don't think Jesus is criticizing religious beliefs or political beliefs or, you know, it's impossible to navigate this world without beliefs. (laughs) You'd just be completely paralyzed. But there is a way that we can hold those beliefs that actually keeps us from seeing goodness, from seeing people as human beings created in the image of God, that though they may be going through something right now, something difficult, it, it, it causes us to see people as simply issues or defined only by whatever they are doing or their, their lot in life instead of actually seeing them. And this is where the idolatry of ideology is so destructive both to those who practice it and those they interact with. One of the most fascinating things about this story is how little anyone actually pays attention to this guy who's had this amazing miracle. The disciples, you know, who was born, you know, who sinned, you know, this man's parents are him that he was born blind. The Pharisees are criticizing him after he's been healed. Nobody is rejoicing over this freaking miracle. And that shows me that they've all been blinded by their own religious beliefs. Their belief has actually caused them to live in a very constrictive, blinding world. But Jesus doesn't play that game. He just looks at this guy who's been suffering his whole life. He says, this is an opportunity for blessing, for goodness, for shalom. This is an opportunity for a man to not only receive his sight, but to be able to actually participate in community, an opportunity for this guy to maybe get out of poverty because this blindness has defined his life the whole time. And that's the interesting thing about this. It starts off as a story about a a blind guy and a question about, you know, sin and, and, and suffering. But ultimately, Jesus does reveal there is a type of sin that can cause blindness. But it's not the sins that we tend to think of. The sin is actually in how tightly we hold our beliefs and how we make an idol of those beliefs. Now, if you read the Old Testament, there's 
there's statements uh, from the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah. There's, there's all these statements that talk about how one of the byproducts of idolatry, anytime we make an idol of anything in the creation, instead of looking beyond the thing itself to the, to the one who created it, anytime we make an idol out of anything, it causes blindness. There's this one Psalm that says those who, who make idols and worship them will become like them. An idol is a statue that has eyes and ears and a mouth and a nose, but it is just a piece of rock. It can't see. It can't hear. And we become numb whenever we worship something that uh, when we get stuck on the thing itself rather than the one who created all things. And look, I get why this happens. I don't think any of us like mystery. <laughs> mystery is the unknown. We want something, whether it's a scientific theory or a religious theology or a political ideology that explains everything. But oftentimes the explanations that we end up with are the ones that put us on the moral high ground and explain that anybody else who's going through anything bad, it's because they're not as pious or as rigorous in their faith or their political ideology or their scientific method as we are. And so the moment we get in that place, we're already losing some of our vision. Back in August 2005, Katrina was heading towards New Orleans, and I was living in the New Orleans area. And I had a friend of mine who was in town uh, because he was supposed to catch a plane to fly to Virginia the, that Sunday morning, the day before Katrina hit. And his flight got canceled because they shut the airport down. And so this friend of mine needed a way out. So he's like, he stayed the night with us. He's like, hey, how about y'all take me to my house? He lived about an hour north of, of New Orleans. He's like, y'all can stay the night there and y'all can get me back home. So we're like, okay, great. So that Sunday morning, the, the day before Katrina hit, we packed up the car with me and my wife and kids and, and, and my friend, and we drove up to his house an hour north of us. And that night, we're like many other people, we're fixated on the weather channel, watching the track of the storm and uh, thinking of how bad it's going to be. And his wife, him and his wife were devout Christians. They'd, they'd been a part of a college ministry that I had pastored back in the 90s. And his wife made a, a, just a passing comment. She goes, well, I guess New Orleans finally going to get what it has come into it. You know, it's finally going to be get the judgment of God through this storm. And the reality is there were certain parts of my journey, certainly back in the nineties where I had said many things like that, you know, just summed up somebody's lot in life or, or some natural disaster as, Oh, this is just the judgment of God. But now having lived in the new Orleans area a few years before that storm, I was like, that, that really hit me in a different way because it's a different thing when you, you, your, your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. Yeah. I, like anybody else, I, I know there's plenty of problems in New Orleans with corruption and, you know, uh, different issues, but it really kind of struck me as kind of callous. And if it did that night, 
then a week later after the storm had hit and, and, and coming to terms with all the damage, you know, I had, I got in on a relief convoy about a week after the storm and I came, to, you know, into an area where you had National Guard troops and there was no electricity and helicopters flying around. And after being in the city where you couldn't normally see the stars at night because of the ambient light of the city, it was eerie. You know, you'd look up and you could see stars and there's helicopters flying around and 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 then not to mention watching all the crazy stuff on the news about the people stranded at the super dorm superdome the the death toll rising each day it was just horrible and then within you know a week or two hearing televangelists and Christian leaders around this country from outside the area just proclaimed that this was the judgment of God. Although, you know, if God was judging New Orleans for its sin, he, he missed the French Quarter. The French Quarter is the one area in New Orleans known for the debauchery and immorality, and, and French Quarter didn't get phased. <laughs> it was back in business pretty quick. And that's what much of this story kind of reminds me of. People who just merely look at a bad situation and they look at it in such a way that their religious beliefs or political beliefs gives them the moral high ground to point their finger and judge another group of people for why this happened so they don't have to do anything. It's just they're not even seeing people. They're just seeing a bad situation and explaining why it happened. I contrast that with what I began experiencing within a few days of Katrina. We began seeing teams from churches around the country. Over three years, it was thousands and thousands of, of people that came down, just that were staying at this uh, relief camp we set up by the church I was a part of at the time. You know, we, we housed team after team from around the country, different denominations, and these guys and girls were just going in, ripping up, carpet and sheetrock and gutting homes, feeding people in FEMA trailers, hot meals, running job fairs, uh, passing out relief supplies, and, and even at one point beginning to help people rebuild. And, I, and I've talked to so many of these people over the years who came down for that, and they, and they talk about how just being involved with that changed their life. It changed my life. But that response right there in and of itself is very much the Jesus response. While the disciples and the Pharisees are all kind of arguing over, like, why did this happen? Jesus isn't spending a whole lot of time with arguing over why this happened. This is just an opportunity for blessings to come. This is an opportunity for God to show up and do something good for this blind man. This is an opportunity for people of faith to help people in a community that's been ravaged by a horrible natural disaster. That's the Jesus thing. And when I read this parable, it, it, it really, or it's not even a parable. When I read this story, it, it kind of acts like a parable. But, but when I read it, I, I can't help but thinking, what if instead of judging the people that we encounter in our day-to-day -day life, that seem to be going through a hard time and just trying to coldly explain why they have a problem. Well, you know, you just didn't work hard enough or, you know, maybe if you had more retirement or maybe this or that, if we spent less time 
trying to figure out good and bad and, and who's in our tribe and who's in the other tribe. <laughs> and we actually just rolled up our sleeves and started trying to be a part of a solution. This world would be a much better place. I think one of the things that is so disheartening when I look at the world of politics right now, it's, it's become so freaking polarized that I really think we're living in the day where if there were some Republican guy that actually did something for society that was obviously beneficial to humanity, I don't know if a lot of people on the left could even see it as good. They would be arguing like the Pharisees. Well, you did it wrong. <laughs> but the same thing is, if, if, if a Democrat did something that was obviously beneficial to humanity, I think many people on the Republican side couldn't even see that as well. We're so invested in our ideologies that we become blind to anything that doesn't fit in that. And that's a problem, folks. And this is where there is an invitation of the Spirit. You know, Jesus doesn't live in the area of karma. He's not playing the karma game. And I, I find it interesting, you know, that one of the things that Jesus says, he's like, judge not lest you be judged. It doesn't mean that, you know, you, you can't make it through life without making judgments. You got to make judgments about everything. But there is a type of judgment that just judges a person and writes them off. And I, I think, you know, that's metaphorically the human condition that has existed since the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think that is very much a metaphor for this human condition that we are always, you know, trapped in this condition of trying to judge good and bad, good and bad. Well, there's this other tree called the tree of life. <laughs> it's interesting in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is compared to the tree of life. And I think that what we see in this situation is that the way of life, the path of life is not playing this game of good and bad, who deserves it. It's not answering all these theological questions. It's just simply getting in there and being a blessing. I want to close with uh, some words from U2. They wrote a song back in, uh, well, it was on their album back in 2001 called All That You Can't Leave Behind. It may have been like 2000, but uh, I love this, this little statement from this song called Grace. And this is speaking of grace. She travels outside of karma. She travels outside of karma. When she goes to work, you can hear her strings. Grace finds beauty in everything. This story is an invitation into humility. It is an invitation to look at our beliefs, whether religious, political, scientific, you name it, whatever our ideologies are, and just ask ourselves a question. Have I, am I holding so tightly to my beliefs that it's causing me to be blind? Because keep in mind, you know, the people that, that are often opposing Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious establishment of his day, these were the folks that knew the Bible better than anybody. These are people who devoted their lives to studying the scriptures. They, they, that was what they were about. They knew in their minds how God worked, and they knew how the Messiah would come. And yet, if you take this Christian story to be true, Jesus is God standing right in front of them and they can't even see him. In fact, 
not only do they not see him, they attribute what he's doing to be evil. They call him Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And that's what happens. I remember growing up, you know, late 70s, early 80s, there was, in the church, there was this fascination with the end times and the rapture and who's the Antichrist. I, I think psychologically, I mean, even when you look throughout church history, oftentimes when, when the times get so chaotic and anxious, you, you start seeing these kind of end times things come to the surface because people are really legitimately wondering, like, how much longer can this thing make it? And things just seem like they're falling apart. And here we were as a country, we'd gone through World War II, we'd gone through the the, the atomic bomb being dropped on Hiroshima, uh, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the cultural upheaval of the, the late 60s, and... You know, here we come into the 70s and early 80s, and you see books like The Late Great Great Planet Earth. I think that was Hal Lindsey. might have been somebody else. But you see all these books talking about end times and the Antichrist and the rapture and and, and all kinds of people just believe in any day now now Jesus is going to come back. And I remember when I was like, it was like 1988, there was a book that came out called 88 Reasons to Believe That Jesus is coming back in 1988. And when that didn't happen, the guy came out with a book the next year called 89 reasons. <laughs> and, and, and since then, this seems every few years, there's, there's somebody who announces, we figured it out. We decoded the Bible. Jesus is going to come back on October 25th, blah, blah, blah. And when that doesn't happen, Oh, we, we got a calculation off. It's six months now. And you know, they, they do that a few times and then finally they're, they're a bit discredited, although they never totally lose their followers. And look, I admit there was a time in my life, particularly when I first came to faith as an adult, you know, I really got into biblical prophecy and all of that and trying to figure out who the antichrist was and all this stuff. But at this point, you know, I, I still find myself as an orth, you know, Orthodox Christian, I, I do believe that there will be eventually a return of Jesus. I don't know what that's going to look like. Other than that, I'm pretty agnostic on all those issues. Because one thing that I do see time and time again throughout the scriptures, uh, particularly the New Testament, is that the people who got so attached to how they think God was going to show up are often the ones who miss God when God actually does show up. So to say that, that when God shows up, it's got to look like this or this or this. Oftentimes that puts you into the point of if God doesn't show up that way, you may actually think like the Pharisees that when something good is happening, that it's actually evil. That's actually something that is a possibility. And it comes not from a true experience of God, but from the idolatry of ideology. So this story is an invitation into humility with our beliefs. It is to, to keep an openness to, to say, and, and, and I think one of the ways that we keep an openness to God and, and to where we can, you know, see things better is to, like Jesus said, you know, that we treat other people with love and respect. When we see somebody going through a hard time, we don't just try to judge them for what they're experiencing or write them off or put ourselves on the moral high ground because we happen to be having a good stretch there. But rather, if there's a way that we can be a blessing to them, bring healing to them, bring love into their situation, that that's what we're called to do. 
that's it. But I believe as we practice that, we start seeing things in a better way, in a more clear way. We start seeing people as created in the image of God. No matter how flawed their decisions or their circumstances may be, we are actually seeing instead of just being blinded by these beliefs that have actually become an idol in our lives. Grace travels outside of karma. Thanks for listening to Extra Crispy.